Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're going Vax to the Future to look at the science behind DNA and RNA vaccines. How do they work? What can they do? And how can they be made at scale so that more people around the world can benefit from them? I'm willing to bet that before 2020, you probably hadn't heard of RNA vaccines. And you almost certainly hadn't heard of DNA vaccines. Unless, of course, you're a researcher working in that area, in which case, high five. Thank you. We took a look at the history of mRNA vaccines back in January 2021, when the first mRNA COVID vaccine programmes began to roll out in some parts of the world. Today, we're going to look to the future to see what else nucleic acid vaccines, that's RNA and DNA, are capable of, and discover why the largest DNA factory in the world is a lot smaller than you might expect. The history of vaccination against infectious diseases goes back a long way possibly more than 2,000 years, as people tried to carefully expose themselves to just a little bit of an infection in order to provide protection, primarily from smallpox. The first proper vaccine that we know of came in May 1796, when English doctor Edward Jenner injected eight-year-old James Phipp with pus from a milkmaid's cowpox sore. Gross, I know, but it worked to protect the kid when Jenner later injected him with smallpox. From there came a whole host of innovations, from injecting people with killed bacteria or viruses or other molecules from pathogens that had been treated in some way to make them harmless, through to recombinant protein vaccines made in the lab with genetic engineering, and on to today's cutting-edge DNA and RNA vaccines. But whether it's Jenner's cowpox jab or the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA COVID vaccine, they all work in the same basic way as a kind of biological training programme, teaching your immune cells what to look out for and react to when they encounter that particular pathogen for real. But while it seems obvious how dead bacteria or viruses could be effective as a vaccine, it's a bit more complicated when it comes to nucleic acids. To find out more, I sat down for a chat with Dr John Tregoning from Imperial College London. He's an expert on vaccines and respiratory infections, and is also the author of the book Infectious, which is a fascinating tour of all the ways that nature is trying to kill us and how we're fighting back against it. I started by asking him how RNA and DNA vaccines actually work. DNA is the material that your cells use to instruct them how to make proteins. It's like the library in the centre of the cell that has the information, the instructions of how a cell is. So human DNA will tell your cells to be human. Mouse DNA will tell a mouse to be mouse. It, It encodes life itself. And the way it does that is like a library, it then can have little copies which are taken out. And the RNA is the books that are taken out of the library and taken to the protein factories in the cell called the ribosomes where the proteins are made. And what's really key is that DNA is universal. So everything alive on Earth uses DNA. So the instructions from one type of organism can actually be moved into a cell of a different one and you'll start making that protein. And so the way that DNA and RNA vaccines work is that it's changing where you're making the protein from the pathogen for the vaccines. And what we're doing with DNA and RNA vaccines is instead of making the protein in a glass bottle, 
you're making the protein in your arm muscle. And so the difference between the two platforms is that DNA, you need to go from DNA to RNA to protein and RNA kind of shortcuts one step and goes from RNA to protein. Are there any other particular differences, advantages or disadvantages of using mRNA versus DNA as a vaccine? I think what we've seen is that the mRNA has been much more effective as a human vaccine platform. The DNA approach has been around for much longer. So the underpinning idea of it came about in about the 60s, 70s, where somebody took some DNA from one organism, injected it into a mouse and could see an immune response happening. So this idea has been around for a long time. There have been a lot of clinical trials trying to make a good DNA vaccine but they haven't quite worked as effectively as the RNA. So the RNA maybe benefits from not having to go through as many steps to be made into a protein. The the fact that you have this DNA RNA protein versus RNA protein, it may be just by shortcutting one step, it can be more effective. But the one thing I do know about DNA is like DNA gets everywhere. It lasts for ages. We can dig up DNA from thousands and thousands of years ago and it's fine. And then having worked in a lab with RNA, that stuff is Fussy. You just look at it and it's degraded, right? So I guess there is a, a difference there in the actual stability of the vaccines. Yeah, I think so. And in terms of kind of a manufacturing process, potentially DNA could either be made more stably or last longer. Maybe one of the challenges of the vaccine rollout with the RNA vaccines was that it needed very, very cold freezers, sort of minus 80 freezers that aren't universally available. And it may be that if a DNA vaccine could be found to be effective, it would be easier to more widely roll out. So where are we now with using these kinds of nucleic acid vaccines? What's the kind of state of the field right now? The biggest step was what happened during the COVID pandemic. And actually, RNA and viral vectors were one of almost 200 different platforms. There were so many vaccines trialled during that early first six to nine months of 2020 when the virus first emerged properly. And I think we saw this kind of lots of different things being tested. And that was great because actually it's like lottery tickets. The more you buy, the more chances you have of winning. I think the next steps will be people thinking about using RNA vaccines either for other pandemic preparedness. So the advantage of RNA and DNA is the speed at which you can make a completely different vaccine. So the amount of time from when the first sequence came out for the virus to when the first vaccine was made was about two months. And so that can be used for future. So if there's another, for example, influenza pandemic in 10 years time, you could sequence the influenza virus and make an RNA vaccine or a DNA vaccine very, very quickly. So that kind of pandemic preparedness is really important. The other advantage of these approaches is that the manufacturing is the same regardless of what you're making a vaccine against. So a flu RNA vaccine is the same as a hepatitis B RNA vaccine or a streptococcus pneumonia RNA vaccine. So you can use one factory and the plant in one factory to make all these different things. With the kind of earlier types of vaccines, you may need different growing conditions. You can't grow a bacteria in the same way as a virus. So there's much more flexibility. So I think the first step is continuing in pandemic preparedness with these nucleic acid vaccines. I think the next thing we might see then is new vaccines for old pathogens. So it may be that some of the viruses and bacteria that we don't have vaccines for 
maybe an RNA vaccine would help with that, or at least in the kind of understanding the immune response that you want to generate for that. And then the last one is that, would it be useful for what might be seasonal endemic viruses such as influenza? So there's a kind of range of things within infection that these vaccines might be useful for. Yeah, a universal flu vaccine that is a one and done, that would be great. Yeah, and that's been a long goal and maybe the platforms will help in, in that, but also it's about understanding more about viral proteins. And I think actually we learned a lot during the pandemic about what vaccines can do and, and this kind of opportunity for learning was really important and will shape what happens in the next pandemic or as they're rolled out for other non-pandemic vaccines. And finally, looking at the vaccines that are coming through the pipeline, what are you most excited about coming out of this field, the, the next disease that we're likely to have a nucleic acid vaccine against coming through? The really exciting stuff, I think, is some of the stuff around shingles and chickenpox. And there's some data that's just come out relatively recently that the chickenpox vaccine seems to reduce the rate of progression to dementia. So by not getting shingles, you're less likely to get dementia. So actually, it's another thing that vaccines don't just stop short term disease. They can shape your whole health future. I think we've seen that with the human papilloma virus and the massive reduction in cervical cancer. So I think seeing vaccines as a platform for lifelong health, I think that's the most exciting thing. And then I think for me, the next big exciting vaccine, it may not be RNA DNA yet, but there is a huge TB vaccine trial that's just been announced. And I think if there's a vaccine against TB, that's a huge force for good. Fingers crossed. John talked about how vaccines can train our immune systems to fight off infections. But what about training programmes for other diseases? In recent years, we've seen the rise of immunotherapy for treating cancer. These are drugs known as checkpoint inhibitors that activate immune cells to recognise and destroy tumours. They've been transformative for some patients and netted a Nobel Prize for their discoverers, James Allison and Tasuku Honjo. But they don't work for everyone. So there's clearly more that we can do to kick the immune system into action against cancer. One of the researchers who's dedicated his career to trying to do just this is Christian Ottensmeyer, a consultant medical oncologist and professor of immuno-oncology at the University of Liverpool. He's particularly interested in the promise of vaccines not to prevent cancer, but to treat it once it's growing in the body, by training immune cells known as T-cells to recognise its presence and go on the attack. So the first piece is the knowledge that immune cells can recognize cancer cells. And that initially came from the observation when you looked at cancer samples under the microscope, you found that many of them contain immune cells and particularly T cells. T cells are called T cells because they grow up in the thymus. The thymus is a gland behind the breastbone. All our T cells are born in the bone marrow. Then they go to school in the thymus. They're trained against a curriculum, which essentially tells them what to not recognize. You know, in school, we get to train what to learn. And the thymus is a school where you train what not to recognize. And the guys that do nothing at all, they're sort of culled by neglect. The guys that are really good at recognizing healthy structures, they're removed because they're dangerous. And then you're left with a large range of cells T-cells that leave the thymus, they graduate from school and they begin patrolling our body. Now, in the 
cancer tissue, the key information we need to take into consideration is that actually 99 or so percent of what is in the cancer cell is actually very similar to healthy cells. So you have then the problem that the cancer cells gradually become over time and often over years, sometimes over decades, become more abnormal. In other words, gain features that make them behave differently to healthy cells. And if that is a process that is driven by genetic change, then the genetic change can enable molecules to be made and read from these genes that T cells might be able to recognize. And we can say as an overall summary, the cancer cells are visible to T cells if the T cells find something that is interesting. If they find something that is interesting, they can attack the T cells. If that is successful, you get rid of the cancer. And so cancer vaccines at the heart of the, of the matter try and train T cells to recognize differences. And so what we've learned over the last sort of 25, 30 years is that you can read out the molecules that make cancer cells different to healthy cells and that you can then take those differences and turn them into synthetic molecules and you can turn these into a vaccine, give them to the patient. What are the advantages of using nucleic acid vaccines for this training of the T-cells? How does that work? So the advantage of nucleic acids is that they are really easy to adapt to the purpose that you want them to be used for. Nonetheless, these nucleic acid vaccines only work if the cell that you're vaccinating actually needs to take the genetic code, make RNA from it, turn the RNA into protein. So the DNA and also RNA vaccines are quite a step away from the final chemical product, the peptides that wake our T cells up. But because we know so much about how these processes work, it's been possible to make DNA and mRNA vaccines that really reproducibly make these steps happen and in such a way that you can reproducibly train immune cells in the patient. And so the other advantages are that these mRNA and DNA vaccines are quite straightforward to manufacture. You can make lots of it really quite quickly. And beyond that, additionally, DNA vaccines have the advantage that the DNA is really stable. But of course, that advantage is only useful if the final product using the material as a vaccine actually turns into something useful clinically. And their DNA vaccines are behind the mRNA vaccines because with COVID, the mRNA vaccines have been used so widely that they've become household names. And so I think what will be needed going forward then is to figure out which of these types of approaches actually is better. And we just don't know that yet. So where are we with these vaccines in terms of clinical trials? Where's the kind of the edge of the field at the moment? The first vaccine licensed in the Western world for cancer was actually a personalized vaccine in which immune cells from the blood were harvested from men with prostate cancer and then were fed with one of these molecules that is special to prostate cancer cells in this case. And this molecule was loaded into the immune cells that had been harvested. These cells are called dendritic cells. And then the final product, these matured dendritic cells, were given back to the patients as a vaccine. 
So that was the first objective evidence that cancer vaccines can attack and benefit patients with advanced cancer. Because it was very difficult, very expensive, very labor-intensive, very complicated, the field has galvanized in December last year. And that was the result of a clinical trial in which an mRNA vaccine that encoded unique differences from the cancer cells of patients with melanoma was used in patients who had had all their cancer removed and who were at high risk of developing recurrent melanoma. Half of the patients got standard immunotherapy, and we know that that in its own right cures a significant fraction of patients. So if you have patients with very high-risk melanoma, you remove this disease with surgery, then roughly half of the patients will eventually relapse. Half of those potential relapses are treated successfully and prevented from relapsing with an anti-PD-1 antibody. And the addition of the vaccine halved the risk yet again. So that was the first randomized data set in the literature that showed that nucleic acid vaccines can actually do the trick and do something really useful. I think we will see new studies emerging and what then ultimately is needed is to figure out how good is this stuff actually, rather than how good are the ideas that you dream up when you think of the ideas first. That in the end will need comparative data If we were to compare patients who have versus those who have not been vaccinated, we can reproduce this kind of benefit in patients with a cancer that has so far escaped any benefit from immunotherapy. And so the time for comparative studies will come in the next five or 10 years, I think. And if those two tick the boxes, then I think, you know, then everybody will scramble to become a vaccinologist. And that is very much the sense of what I'm seeing in the community now. Casting your mind forward, maybe five or so years, where would you hope to be with therapeutic cancer vaccines? I hope, but I think also know and fully expect that in five years, some of these drugs will be on the shelf as medicines. I think that we will look at the patient's cancer. We will make a decision or identify which category immunological category the cancer falls in. And we'll begin making decisions about what drugs to use to manipulate those categories. So tumors where there are lots of immune cells, they're all just sleeping. You ring the bell with an anti-PD-1 antibody and wake the T cells up. Tumors that have no T cells, you need to use a vaccine to make the tumor visible to the immune system, train new T cells against what hasn't happened spontaneously. And then there'll be other categories. So I predict that cancer vaccines in the next five years will become indispensable building blocks for combination immunotherapy. It's interesting, the new era of immunotherapy for cancer, because we're moving from a position where some of the people who are being treated, they were not likely to survive in the long term, or in some cases, even in the the medium or short term. But we're getting to a point where what scientists call durable remissions or what I guess most of us would think of as actual cures, like the cancer seems to have gone and it does not seem to be coming back. Is that an era that we are going to start increasingly moving towards as we understand more about the immune system, its interplay with cancer? Is that something that we can hope for? 
Yes, absolutely. And I think we're there. So, you know, when I started in my oncology practice and started treating patients with melanoma, we did trial after trial after trial, and we never really made anyone better with the outside chance of the odd individual who might get off the hook, less than 1% of patients. Now, we, we fully expect that in many solid cancers, we would cure about 25%, so about a quarter of our patients. And, you know, that's, that's really changed the way we think about it. It's no longer enough to not be able to help the majority of our patients. And for our patients, they now have the expectation, uh, well, find me a treatment that will make this problem go away. So there has been from almost a sense of nihilism about what we might be able to achieve, a period that started in 2011 with this first big paper identifying a drug called ipilimumab as being able to lead to long-term remissions in patients with melanoma, 17% that was. Now we are routinely hitting 25%. In melanoma, we're now routinely hitting 50% of patients who have long-term benefit. So I think what is happening, if, if you imagine it like a cake, we've taken one slice out of the cake with checkpoint inhibitors. That accounts for maybe 20 to 25% of the cake. And now we're trying to whittle away at the rest of the cake. And I'm convinced that we will be able to do much better than we're currently doing in the next three to five years. And I believe that cancer vaccines will play an important role in that. Whether we'll ever get to a point where we can just eat the cake, in other words, where we can cure everyone with cancer, that I don't know. And I think that's quite unlikely. But I suspect that the percentage of people that we genuinely cannot help will get smaller and smaller. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzip.com, or come and say hello to us over on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip. Don't forget that the 1st of September is the deadline for the Society's next round of public engagement grants, with small grants up to £1,000 and larger grants up to £5,000 available to support online or in-person public engagement activities relevant to genetics. It's a great opportunity to bring the wonder of genetics to the wider world or help people engage with complex topics in the field. So if you're interested in applying, then head over to the grants section of the Genetic Society website. That's genetics.org.uk. Or follow the link on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. DNA and RNA vaccines have huge potential to save lives not just from infections, but from cancer and other diseases too. But, like any other medicine, their successful rollout to as many people as need them around the world depends on being able to make enough in high enough quality, known as GMP. Based in West London, Touchlight started out as a biotech company trying to make DNA vaccines. But they soon realised that the key bottleneck wasn't the vaccines themselves – but that there wasn't really a good way to make large amounts of high-quality DNA, not just for vaccines, but for other medical applications like gene therapy too. So they set about trying to develop one. The result was a technology called doggy bone DNA. To find out more, I caught up with Lisa Caproni, Director of Platforms at Touchlight. But before we got our teeth into the doggy bone, I asked her to explain how DNA for medical applications is usually made and what the problem with it is. 
So, you know, cells are very good at making DNA. And in particular, E. coli, they can harbor what are called plasmids. So from an E. coli perspective, evolutionary-wise, these plasmids are always contain some sort of benefit to the organism. Things like, you know, making them resistant to antibiotics, which means that, you know, when they live in the soil, they can have a much better selective advantage over their competitors. But in terms of biotechnology, what we've done is take those plasmids and make them fit our purpose. But they're always still manufactured inside a bacterial cell. So what that really means in an industrial setup is that you're growing vats of E. coli. And then the E. coli, of course, have their own genome. They have all of their own proteins, their cell walls, etc. You then have to purify that pDNA, that plasmid DNA, which obviously suits your therapeutic function, from all of that bacterial soup. So that's the scale of that fermentation process. And then the complexity of that purification is really where a lot of the challenges for PDNA comes from. One thing I know about bacteria is that they can be pretty nasty. They've got quite a lot of crap in them. I should imagine that if you want DNA for therapeutic purposes to inject into someone as a vaccine or to use as a gene therapy, it's got to be pretty clean. And that can't be easy. It is. So E. coli, for example, have a bacterial cell wall which contains endotoxin. It contains something called LPS, and we call it endotoxin because in the context of delivering endotoxin, if you have a, a batch that isn't fully clean, that can cause real problems in the host organism, so in a patient, for example. So the purification complexity from an E. coli fermentation-based production of plasmid is complex, necessarily complex, because you have to remove host cell DNA, host cell protein, all of that fermentation liquor. It's not actually as straightforward as you would imagine. And all the time you're doing that purification, you have to make sure that you don't damage the plasmid. Because if you damage the plasmid, you negatively impact functionality. So there's that fine balance all the way through that process of clearing everything else away, but maintaining the integrity of the final product. And that is where the complexity comes in. So now let's come to the process that Touchlight is using, this idea of doggy bone DNA. So let's let's start with like, what is it? I am imagining something that looks like a dog bone, like a child might draw. What is it? What's the structure? So the doggy bone DNA, yeah, it probably is a misnomer because it doesn't actually look like a bone. Even our early schematics drew it like a bone. It's not true. But what it is, it's a linear covalently closed piece of DNA. And the covalently closed part is those ends. So if you understand what DNA is being a double helix, you have two strands. And so in a linear molecule, normally those ends are free and they're open. So it's like two pieces of string and you twine them together. The doggy bone DNA, of course, has enough. It just has enough DNA to close off the ends. What those ends give you are stability and they also are not available for exonuclease digestion. So that increased stability can help you intracellularly. So when your DNA is functioning for whatever purpose you want it to function for. So we've talked about how we make plasmids in E. coli bacteria. How do you make this doggy bone DNA? So in E. coli, you're amplifying the pDNA using the enzymes inside the E. coli. So that amplification is intracellular. We take enzymes and we do it essentially in a test tube. So we create a very small amount of a circular template and we use that template to amplify the material. We use this very specific enzyme called 529 polymerase. It's highly processive. What that means is it can do really long DNA, but it's also strand displacing. 
What that means is that the 529 amplifies and then rather than stop when it's reached the end of the circle, it displaces the newly synthesized strand. And then you make these long single-stranded, then double-stranded repeats of your original template. Sounds complex, but the video on the website really does help with this, I promise. Certainly does. And that's the amplification part of the process. Then comes in the second main enzyme, and that's called a protelomerase. So the protelomerase is really what creates these doggy bone DNA units. So it cuts through the double helix with a staggered six-base pair overhang and closes the end. So the way I'm kind of imagining this process is almost like you're spooling string off a big spool and then just cutting it at regular intervals to give you these identical, almost like shoelaces that are, are sealed at the end. It, it does sound very clever. It is, it is very clever. And that's a great analogy that describes it really well. So when we're thinking about using DNA as a therapeutic, using it as vaccines, using it in other kinds of treatments... If we're going to make this viable, we're going to need a large amounts of this DNA. So how does this process scale up? I'm trying to imagine like how big a, a test tube do you need? How much can you make? It scales up beautifully. So unlike biologics processes, and by a biologics process, I mean something complex that involves cells as part of that production. The perfect example, of course, is plasmid fermentation those don't necessarily always scale up linearly. And that's a really classic issue with biologics processes. Take an enzymatic process like ours. So far, we've gone from nanograms and we're multigram scale now, and it's been linearly scaling up. And that's not to say that we're not making massive improvements along the way. We never stay still in terms of process improvement. But we are currently at multigram scale. And actually, our scale-up process is aiming to take us beyond 40 grams, more like 100 grams for a single batch. Now, for DNA, that is astonishing. But it's, it's not just about scale-up for us. We think that the flexibility for scale-out is really, really important for some therapeutic indications. So take a neoantigen vaccine. Those are patient-specific vaccine products. They still have to be GMP. But you don't need five grams per patient you need maybe 100 milligrams per patient. And that's really difficult to do with plasmid technology because everything's been, all the GMP processes have been built for larger scale. Whereas with our flexible manufacturing, we can do that at much lower scales, but we can also parallelize. So in our new facility, like I, I mentioned, it's not a big building, but it's, we believe it's possibly the largest DNA manufacturing facility in the world. And then you compare that to even a small fermentation plant for pDNA. It really is quite quite a contrast. It must be a bit of an odd feeling to be sitting there watching the production of this DNA and thinking, you know, that's going into people. Maybe one day you'll have a, a DNA vaccine or DNA treatment that's based on this stuff that you helped develop. That would be amazing. Yeah, we have. So we have a few products going into the clinic or in the clinic. And I think just greater adoption of this technology would just be my dream. It really is, like I said, it's that combination of the manufacturing benefits. But the, for me, really interesting as a scientist who's used this doggy bone DNA in so many different applications, is the functionality benefits that you can get from it. And just being able to just keep pushing genetic therapies and nucleic acid vaccines, I really think we have something, something really quite special at Touchlight. That's all for now. 
Thanks to Lisa Caproni from Touchlight and also John Tregoning and Christian Ottensmeyer. We'll be back next time talking about the man who came up with the theory of evolution by natural selection. No, not Charles Darwin, but his superfan, Alfred Russell Wallace. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip, while it still exists. And please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference and it does help more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle, audio production is by Emma Werner and the team, and our producer is Sally LePage. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.